This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson, U.S. now dealing with a record number of people in the hospital because of COVID. It's approaching 100,000. Medical systems starting to feel real strain. We'll explore how close a country's healthcare system is to a breaking point. Cases are going up around the country, but people still traveled and gathered on Thanksgiving and will probably do so again Christmas time. Is the messaging the problem? Do health authorities need to change the tune. CDC deciding who gets that vaccine first will get into who goes to the front of the line. We've talked about how tourism and hospitality have been devastated in this pandemic, but now there is some reason for hope and quick recovery. And if you're looking forward to your company holiday party, all the shenanigans that come with it, you are in for a long wait, or maybe they'll just do it on Zoom, and that'll be torturous for everyone. <laughs> Let's start with the pandemic's strain on hospitals. Dr. Janice Orlowski is chief health officer for the Association of American Medical Colleges. Doctor, hospitals have plans for surge capacities, but they can only do so much. So what are we looking at over the next uh, month or two? What we know is in April, uh, we hit a high of a daily census of about 60,000 COVID um, cases. Uh, Yesterday, we were at 96,000 COVID cases across the nation. So that's about 15% of all hospital beds in the United States. And we're just seeing that number continuing to rise. Um, And in the spring, we saw uh, the cases on the West Coast, on the East Coast. Now, quite frankly, we're seeing cases across the country. And we expect expect those numbers to continue to climb over the next four, five, six weeks. That does raise a a, a perhaps somewhat thorny question. Uh, I mean, does everybody who is going to a hospital and being hospitalized for COVID, and I'm not talking about people who are in need of, of, uh, you know, intensive care, but does everybody who's hospitalized for COVID necessarily need to be hospitalized? I mean, you know, hospitals do, hate to say it, but they do make lots of money on people staying there for a few days. Well, uh, what we have found is that number of people with COVID who require hospitalization is less as a percentage now than it was in the spring. Now, in the spring, you might remember, we didn't understand the disease. We didn't have treatments for it. Now we have a better handle on who gets really sick, who can stay as an outpatient. Uh, We are able to give um, certain drugs and and certain antibodies as an outpatient, um, steroids, um, and, and so what I would say is is the remarkable thing about the rising numbers is it's during a time where we're actually keeping more people with mild to moderate symptoms out of the hospital. And can you also kind of forecast who is likely to have a pretty bad case and needs to maybe be watched? Um, we do know um, those people who are diabetic, those people who have obesity, those that have um, uh, certain uh, concomitant diseases. But, you know, even with that, um, we have to watch everyone carefully because there are young young people who get very sick, you know, people who have no uh, associated illnesses. So everyone needs to be monitored carefully as, um, as an outpatient, and then only those who reach certain... Uh, um, you know, levels of illness uh, are coming in. I'm hearing from hospital uh, 
leaders across the country that they are um, stressing the number of uh, beds that are, are being used, that their ICUs are full. But most of all, the, the biggest problem is that they're concerned about their nurses and doctors and all the other um, healthcare staff, the respiratory therapists, the pharmacists, who really have been at this pandemic for um you know, hundreds and hundreds of days. And I, I have to say the thing that I'm hearing is is not only are the beds scarce and resources, but it's the personnel that everyone is worried about. Well, and, and the other thing, because if the beds, in fact, are becoming scarcer and scarcer and the personnel becoming as well, as you know, there are people who are concerned that we will get to the point in this country where a lot of very uncomfortable decisions might have to be made about who gets what kind of care. Is that actually going to happen? Uh, the answer is we are concerned that uh, we are heading in that direction. And so we have sent out to all of our um, schools of medicine, to the teaching hospitals, and to share with their community and rural hospitals something that we call the crisis standards of care. And the crisis standards of care are principles by which people make decisions about um, who gets care, how much care they get. And uh, these are principles that have been established. Um, by studying these kinds of pandemics. Um, normally, uh, what you're looking at is, you know, an area where there might be a flood or a hurricane or, uh, you know, some kind of natural catastrophe. Now we're actually seeing uh, COVID across the nation. And we're saying, um, educate your community, have these discussions, make sure people understand um, how you're going to go about making decisions um, about using your pre precious resources. Dr. Janice Orlowski, Chief Health Officer, the Association of American Medical Colleges. Christmas is coming up and lots more people will be traveling and getting together. Health officials warning people not to do it for Thanksgiving, but many did listen, but many more, well, did not. So why aren't people listening is it's the messaging that they're hearing. Dr. Philip Wong is an epidemiologist, director of the Dallas County Health and Human Services Department in Texas. So, doctor, why aren't people listening to you and others? Well, it is a difficult situation. I mean, we're all, we all have COVID fatigue. Um, everyone's human. We're getting tired of it. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think uh, locally, when we do get these big resurgences and, uh, you know, people are seeing uh, more of these images of the ICUs, uh, you know, being uh, higher occupancy and, and hearing uh, some of these personal stories, I, I think that we do get some resurgence of people saying, oh yeah, this is serious again. We need to uh, take it more seriously. We've seen some reflection and, you know, uh, right before Thanksgiving of uh, some flattening out of some of our numbers, but uh, but it's difficult. Well, it, it, it might be hard to, uh, for people to keep it up, but I'm wondering in terms of, of messaging, I mean, we you know, we did find, as you know, with, with tobacco smoking, there came a point when you know, the advertising to get people to stop smoking had to be very dramatic, very blunt. And basically, it had to tell people, if you smoke, you may not only kill yourself, but because of secondhand smoke, you may kill those you love around you. Why don't we have public service announcements on things like, you want to go home for Christmas? You want to go home for Thanksgiving? You may kill your parents. Why not that? Why not be absolutely 100 percent blunt? Sure. And, and I know even with the development of those uh, public health 
uh, tobacco messaging. You know, I mean, it does take a lot of, uh, you know, really uh, seeing what resonates uh, with the population and with the target audience. Sometimes there are things that we think will be effective that don't actually make the right effect. I mean, I think that we did see in, you know, some of the CDC campaigns where it is that sort of personal story where uh, the message is seeing the impact can resonate on a personal level, I know, and, and different target audiences, uh, you know, respond to different messages. But, but look, but clearly the messaging is not as effective as it needs to be because while travel, for example, for Thanksgiving was down about 40% from last year, it was still millions and millions of Americans took to the roads, they took to the airports. My guess is we're going to see the same thing coming up on Christmas. So we're doing something wrong. Right. No, I mean, I agree. I think that there, um, and I totally agree with you, we need to identify which messages are most effective. I think it's been very um, problematic that there are mixed messages even coming from, you know, the leadership. And, and so, uh, you know, that's confusing to the public, certainly, uh, you know, the lack of consistency in some of the messaging. Uh, but no, your point's well taken. Uh, but I do think we, we, we need to identify exactly what messages are the most effective. I think there are efforts to do that. I guess I'm wondering why we haven't figured it out yet, or did we, and it just fell off? Because there's that other study out, you know, it's making the rounds today, Northwestern, I think. They say, hey, you know, social distancing was actually pretty good in April and May, and then now it's just not, unless you're in certain groups and you're still hanging on. But a lot of people have just gotten off the wagon, and it's going to be hard to get them back on because it is the holidays. Right. Well, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. We've we've had success. Uh, we've shown that when we do what we know works, it'll slow the spread down. We've you know flattened the curve. We've slowed the spread. Uh, we've had success, uh, but it's hard. You know, people are human. It's hard for them to keep it up. Um, I think that you know more and more, all of us are knowing personally people who've been you know dramatically impacted or even died from this. Uh, that certainly uh, helps dispel this hoax. Uh, you know, message that's out there. But you look at the numbers, and they're just. I mean, even the number of deaths. How high? It is. But is there still so many of us that don't know somebody who's died from this that we don't make that connection? You know, it could be, you know, and again, there are some uh, the youth, you know, younger people don't necessarily feel that immediate impact or uh, that sense that they're not as impacted. It's different for different particular groups. Yeah, but why do you think that in particular, the younger people that you were just referring to, why are they and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but why do, do so many of them not seem to grasp that, yes, they may not get particularly ill, at least from what we know now about COVID, but to your point, uh, you know, going and visiting their, their parents, their grandparents, they may make those people not only ill, but as I said earlier, they may end up, in effect, killing them. What is so hard for some of these people to comprehend. It seems pretty clear. Right. But then again, you, even, you know, when we were talking about the examples of smoking, I mean, that's even with smoking, that's been a difficult message sometimes to get across to youth. Um, and youth don't feel vulnerable to these things. They feel like they're uh, immortal or something, you know. 
Dr. Philip Wong, epidemiologist, director of the Dallas County Health and Human Services Department in Texas. The CDC now figuring out who will get the coronavirus vaccines first. There's so much demand for it that if no priority is given and no system set up, those who need it the most might have to wait and wait and wait. Ruth Faden with us now, founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. So Ruth, looks like the healthcare workers are among the first, right? So then what about everybody else? I would slow this down a little bit. Uh, what happened What happened today was a vote by an advisory committee for guidance through the first phase, first phases of the vaccine rollout. So what the ACIP is, it's called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, has recommended thus far is for the first tranches of vaccine to go to healthcare workers to residents of home, um, of long-term care facilities, that's first, then to other essential workers, and then to adults at elevated risk of severe disease and death, either because they're older than 65 or because they have a significant comorbidity or other condition that puts them at higher risk of getting very ill if they become infected. So that's who goes first. Now, as I understand it, these are recommendations that the CDC makes, but it's up to, in the end, the governors of every state to figure out what they're going to do. Is that right? That's my understanding as well. So So the guidance will come from CDC, and then we've got 50 states plus a bunch of other jurisdictions that are all in the midst of making their own decisions. Many of them will follow the CDC to some extent, but some may not. So how do you make the decision? What does it look like when you're in that room and you're trying to give a fair shot to shot to everybody? (laughs) Good pun. There you go. We are trying to give a fair shot. That is true. And in some cases, it's two shots. (laughs) Double fair shots. So what does it look like? Yeah. So what what we try to do, and I've been involved in this uh, this process, for example, for the World Health Organization, which is also providing guidance to countries. And the countries, again, will make their own determinations. But you try to step back and ask, what are the fundamental um, ethical principles that matter when you think about fair access to vaccine in the context of a pandemic? You think about your public health strategies. What do you want to accomplish at each stage of vaccine rollout? And the relationship between the two, the ethical values and the public health priorities. So if you step back and you see what the CDC is recommending, they're operating with respect to health workers uh, motivated by several values. One is the value that health workers are at elevated risk of infection, not all of them, but some of them, because they take care of us when we have COVID or we're suspected of having COVID. Also, we need health workers to be healthy and well themselves so they can take care of us, not only with respect to COVID, but because of any cause of illness right, or injury or accident. And also because we kind of owe them for putting their uh, lives on hold and taking on tremendous burden and some elevated risk to protect the rest of us. So those are the sort of ethical justifications for health workers. For long-term care facility, uh, residents and for older Americans and for Americans who are otherwise, for different reasons, at elevated risk of serious disease. What's motivating that prioritization is a commitment to try to reduce death 
and severe disease. So those are the values that we that are animating these initial decisions. Now, after that, as you did in your as you mentioned in your run up, it gets a little more complicated, right? Where do we go from there? But let me just say that it's not simple, even in that category of essential workers. Who counts as an essential worker? That's something the states are going to have to figure out. Well, by the way, what happens when you're talking about vaccines, the thousands of people in all these trials for the vaccines, half of whom didn't get the vaccine? What about them? So that's a great question. It's being much debated. Uh, so for the listener, the way the trials are designed, uh, as you pointed out, it's really important that the trials be blinded, that some people get vaccine and some people get essentially a saline injection, a fake vaccine or a placebo, but that neither the participants nor the doctors taking care of them know which they've gotten. And that gives us the best possible uh, scientific way to assess the effectiveness of the vaccine and also the vaccine safety. Now we're in a bit of a conundrum. We have... Uh, we think we're going to know more after the FDA and independent scientists look at the full, what they call the full data package uh, for the two uh, key uh, vaccine uh, manufacturers right now, the Pfizer, vac the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, but it looks like they are incredibly effective vaccines. So you're going to have people in the trials, half of whom, as you say, did not get the real vaccine. They got the fake shot. And now vaccine is going to start to be rolled out as a matter of public health programming to different groups of the population. Uh, one view that is emerging is that if a person is a participant in a trial and in one of those groups where vaccine is going to be made available to them otherwise, right? And as if they were just a member of the general public, is it where their ticket has come up? that they should be notified or have a chance to find out whether they got the active vaccine or the placebo and get the, and get the active vaccine if they didn't get it. That's not jumping the queue. That's just saying, if say you're an over 65 or over 70 person in the trial, right? Uh, you And now in your community, vaccine is available to people who are over 65. You should be able to get that vaccine. Now it's gonna have implications for the vaccine trial itself that people are trying to figure out how to make this work so that we can still get the information we need. And that may not be how it ends up, but that's at least one argument that's out there. All right. Ruth Faden, founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Ruth, thanks. Coming up after this short break, the travel industry getting ready for a big bounce back. The pandemic slammed the tourism and hospitality industries. It happened harshly and quickly, too, with stay-at-home and quarantine restrictions. But a new survey shows there's reason for hope. Lou Lou is an assistant professor at the School of Sports, Tourism, Hospitality, Temple University. She talks to KYW's Matt Leon. So the fact is, according to our founding, people are very apprehensive about traveling at this moment. That's is, that's very clear. People are concerned about travel because of COVID, and still the data shows. But on the positive note, our participants actually indicate the positive side of travel. So more than consistently, more than 80% people believe that travel is a positive distraction, and travel can actually take their mind of things that are, they're bothering them. So it's more like a mental break from them, and they even indicated they're going to take a leisure vacation soon. 
so more than 80%. So on the positive side, we can see the demand is still there. So the desire is there. It just this fear of contracting the virus is the main hurdle we have to go, we have to overcome. So that's why we have seen it in our data. There is an emerging pattern about you know, high levels of cleanliness and hygiene. And including when people travel internationally, we found, you know, we, we asked them to read, you know, what are some top attributes they're looking for, right? When they travel internationally. I know people are not going to do that very soon. So from, from our data, we found cleanliness actually becomes the second most important factor they're looking for. So definitely we have seen um, so positive and negatives. Negatives, they're still concerned about COVID, but positives, the desire is very strong. So they are willing to travel as long as with all these health and safety measures are in place and they can literally see it. And also they can gain confidence from what they service providers are doing. And another side we see is very interesting is we found our participants have high levels of trust in our industry. So we do have questions asking about their levels of trust, you know, how service providers can provide the safe and healthy environment for them. Um, so our customers indicate, I think more than more than 60% actually participants really strongly agree, neutral to strongly agree that they, they trust our industry, our service providers will ensure every necessary step is taken to protect their health. So these are some good news. You talk about, you know, the health and safety standards and the cleanliness and probably here to stay. If you were talking to people in the industry, are there some other things you think would be good business to decide to keep past the pandemic that have made an impact on people here uh, in the short term while we've been dealing with all this, but that you think participants in your survey and to a broader point, you know, the society at large want to see them maintain in the big picture? So I think for our industry, if we look at an overall pattern that we get from the customers, a few things might emerge. So first of all, I think it's very important for our industry to realize how um, how it becomes necessary to provide sanitation products and also official reports that build that credibility to customers. And it's important to make that visually available so customers can literally see it and also they come from official sources. So that type of practice can add this additional layer of assurance that customers are going to receive high levels of cleanliness and hygiene product. So the environment that they are going to be involved in. So that's something I think is important in terms of marketing message-wise or real operation. I think somehow our industry partners might include in their marketing, let's say in their social media marketing, in their website or in their whatever important marketing messaging. So that part could be communicated. And also, since our customers have a strong desire of travel, consider travel is a mental break, right? And I think strategic speaking in their marketing messaging, maybe tap into this part as well. When they communicate with the customer, really understand their pain. So it's not, it's, so we'll have a problem is if there's no desire, right? So on the positive side, they do have a strong desire. It's just this fear and the concern of COVID sort of, you know, stepping in the middle. So for our industry partner, I think it's very important that 
we show uh, our empathy and also in our marketing messaging, we also touch upon that, remind them how travel can actually heal the pain. So really capitalizing this healing effect of travel. The annual company holiday party is a tradition. It's a chance for co-workers to get together and have fun with each other without the pressures of work. But this year, well, as you can imagine, it's different. Yeah, pandemic has hit pause uh, on parties. Rick Cobb, executive vice president in Challenger Gray and Christmas. He talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about how people are going to wait till next year. More than half the company surveyed state that their business is worse due to covid And then uh, 44% of them are simply just not going to hold an event this year specifically because of COVID. And so the ones who are doing it, I mean, is it is it a Zoom holiday party or something? I mean, what do you do? Actually, and that's what we're doing. Our company is doing that. We're going to hold sort of a pub crawl, but it's going to be a trivia competition. Uh, It'll be Zoom. There's breakout rooms. The technology is not everybody's used to it yet, but if you have a couple people can run it, it works pretty well. Um, So about 17% holding some sort of virtual event, which I think is really important because you need to try to connect your people as much as possible, uh, particularly around the end of the year. And then uh, another 12% are going to make a determination much closer to sort of game time. 10% are unsure. There's about there's 1% that is still going to hold it no matter what. Uh, don't really know what the motivation for that is because you're putting a lot of pressure on your employees uh, to come up with a way to respond that they aren't coming or feel pressure to come. Yeah, wh- what do you say if the boss goes, hey, we're doing it anyway. We're going to have this holiday party. Everybody come. Uh, if yeah. you don't want to go, how do you how do you very delicately get out of that? Well, I think if it's an RSVP environment, unless it's a small company where everybody's going to know, uh, you know, just a simple no is fine. If it's RSVP and you say no, there's a lot of people that don't come to parties for various reasons. You could say personal reasons. Uh, if it's a smaller company, you're just going to have to own it in terms of elder care, uh, child care, whatever other sort of uh, collateral things that are coming up, uh, just to say, I'm just really not comfortable uh, attending just based on the, the the virus. So little as possible and as much as you have to to make it go away. Good advice. Thank you so much, Rick Cobb, Executive Vice President, Challenger Gray and Christmas. If you have asthma, it's probably keeping you healthy in this pandemic. Now, that may sound unusual, but researchers in Israel found that people with asthma might be at a reduced risk of catching COVID-19. They say that there are a few possible explanations. One is that asthma is associated with lower levels of certain enzyme receptors, which are mechanisms for the virus to infect cells. Another reason is that people with asthma may just take more precautions. The third is that inhaled steroids that people frequently use to treat asthma may reduce the risk of the virus. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.